The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, good evening. Can everyone hear me? All right. How's the volume for those in the back? It's okay. Great. So, welcome. Um, and I just want to take a moment um, to see if there are any new people here tonight. So is there anyone that's showing up here for the first time tonight? Wonderful. Okay. Great. So welcome. Welcome to everyone that's coming for the first time. Um, I'll give you just a kind of an overview of um, what we're going to do tonight, uh, and then we're just going to move right into it. So the first part is going to be a guided meditation, and I'll offer some basic instruction on uh, meditation. And then uh, the second part is going to be a uh, discussion on a particular topic. So there's a theme that I've selected tonight, and I'm going to spend some time talking about that and really exploring it. And then the last part is going to be opening up for uh, questions and answers. And it's really going to be a dialogue, and we're going to have the opportunity to benefit from the fact that we're in community. It's such a rare gift to have community. So we're really going to celebrate that uh, by opening up for the collective wisdom that's in this room. So that's a little bit of uh, what we're going to be doing tonight. And so for those that uh, have been here many times, welcome back. It's uh, wonderful to see so many people here, and I thank you for coming tonight. So let's start just by um, settling into whatever posture you've chosen. So if you're on the floor on a cushion and in the mat, just take a few moments to really settle in to arrive. Allow yourself to be here. And if you're sitting back in the chairs, then also allow yourself to arrive and really take a moment to feel that you're here. And then I'm going to invite you to, uh, you can either leave the eyes open with just a soft gaze. Uh, I would suggest that you keep it downward cast because that tends to slow down some of the thinking process, and some of the more discursive patterns that we sometimes have. If it feels comfortable to you, then you can go ahead and allow the eyes to completely close. But just go ahead and choose for yourself whatever feels most appropriate this evening. And now I'd like you to take a few moments and allow your attention to really feel the sense of connection with the floor and with ultimately the earth that's supporting us. Feel a sense of connection with your hands resting on your legs. And really allow yourself to register this connection. There's a tremendous amount of support and stability that's available just when we allow this to really be recognized. There's a capacity. And so I'll just offer the reminder that 
if at any point during the meditation your experience feels as though it's overwhelming, you can actually allow the meditation to go and just tune in again to this sense of connection, this sense of a greater capacity of the ground that has the ability to hold whatever is occurring in the moment. I'd also like you to take a moment to really notice the inherent dignity, the nobility of taking your seat. It is a radical act of kindness, of openness, and of spiritual growth to take your seat and be present with whatever is known moment to moment. So allow yourself to register that as well. And if you're new to meditation, then I'm going to offer some basic uh, instructions. And if you are an old hand at meditation, this is something that you've been practicing for a while, then I'm going to offer some additional instruction. So just allow yourself to stay with the instruction that feels most helpful to you tonight. And if you want, you can even just allow my instruction to go completely, and you can practice with your own style. So you have many options here, and I want to give you full permission to choose what feels most appropriate for you tonight. So now, allow your attention to tune into the fact that you are breathing, the fact that you're alive. And I want you to tune into the direct sensations of the breath wherever you find them most naturally and easily tonight. And when you find the sensations of the breath, I want you to hold a sense or an image of the beautiful breath. That is, each breath is unique. Each breath is different. They're like snowflakes. No two snowflakes are the same. And when you're with the breath, I want you to really notice how you're being with the breath. How are you attending to the breath? So we have a tendency in our lives to strive, a tendency to move very quickly, 
goal-oriented, have a sense of accomplishment. And so in this practice of being with the direct sensations of the breath moment to moment, I want you to see if you can relax around the breath. And so this means that you're not exerting a lot of effort. It means that you're cultivating a very simple and easy curiosity with each sensation of the breath as it's known. So there's a sense of engagement, a sense of curiosity, and aliveness. And it doesn't require a tremendous amount of effort. It's almost a very gentle tuning into, a receptivity to. And if you find that the attention wanders after some time, then just notice that the mind and the attention has moved. And when you notice that the attention has moved from the direct, dynamic, and alive process of breathing, then you can bring it back very gently and really cultivate the sense of openness of kindness towards yourself, non-judgment, and just resting once again with the sensations of the breath as an anchor, as a place to stabilize and gather the attention moment to moment.
So notice where the attention is in this moment. Is it still with the flow of sensations of the breath? Or has it moved? So if you're relatively new to meditation, then I would suggest that you just stay with the breath, with those instructions of cultivating a gentle curiosity, of knowing the moment-to-moment sensations of the breath from the inside out, not the concept of the breath, but the direct immediacy of each breath. So you can stay with that. And when the attention wanders, as it will do, gently bring it back when you notice that it has wandered. And if you've been practicing meditation for a while, then I'm going to offer some invitations for further exploration. And you can start this exploration by 
noticing the sensations of the breath. So staying still with the immediacy of each breath, but then allowing a portion of your attention to actually start to look back at the awareness or the field of the attention that is knowing the sensations. And as you start to notice the field that is around the object of the breath or the sensations of the breath, I want you to just investigate and see if there are thoughts, ideas, or beliefs that might be operating in the background, such as, I know the breath, or this is basic, I've I've done this. Or there can be the slightest agitation in the mind, a leaning into the next breath, a subtle form of moving into the next moment before it has occurred. Or there might be some mood or emotion that's present just as you observe the simple sensations of the breath. So there may be a subtle anxiety if the breath feels too shallow. Or there may be a deep sense of peace that's operating in the background and we can get attached to this sense of peace even as we watch the breath. So just in a very gentle way, start to open the field of your attention so you can still stabilize the attention with each breath, but then you can allow some fraction of the attention to open and notice what's operating as you attend to each breath. Just become curious. And again, don't go looking for something. You don't need to dig something up. You're doing this in a very open and receptive manner. So you're just as though you were dropping in the question about what else might be present and seeing what shows up in the field of your attention.
And if you feel confused or lost, then remember that you can always go back to the breath, stabilize and gather the attention, and then open the field again when you feel ready. Now, if you'd like to further the exploration, see if you can turn the attention back onto itself. And so this can be a little bit awkward to describe in words. But the felt sense of it is noticing if there is a reference point in that which is watching. So just become curious about is there a felt sense or even a belief a fixed reference point within that which knows or is watching each breath as it arises. And just allow yourself, and again, a very open and receptive way to be curious about this felt sense of a reference point. 
what is it when you actually turn the attention onto it? And not the concept of it, but the direct experience of it. And remember, just like before, if confusion arises or there is instability in the field of the attention, you can go back to noticing the periphery around the sensations of the breath, what else is present, or you can go back to the immediacy of each breath as it happens. So really stabilizing and regathering the attention with each breath. So remember that you have options. But if it feels stable, then you can open the attention and turn it back to see, is there a reference point? Is there something fixed in that which is watching, that which is knowing each breath? And in this last few moments of the meditation, I'd like you to open your eyes and just do it very slowly and gently. And again, you don't need to focus on anything as you open the eyes, but just notice what happens as light and form and color floods the visual field as you slowly Open the eyes, again, keeping the gaze soft, not looking at anything, but just having a sense of the visual field. And you'll know this if you have a sense of the periphery, peripheral vision. And as you rest with open eyes, take a few moments to be curious about Is there a sense or a belief of, I know this? So I know this room. I'm familiar with where I'm sitting. Or just, I'm familiar with all the sensations that are being known in the visual field in this moment. 
And actually the truth is that there is an immediacy or a vibrancy in each moment. So we have the perception that we know something. It's familiar to us. And we bring in all sorts of associations and memories, past experiences, rather than just resting with the immediacy, the freshness, and the newness of what is being known. So just color, form, shape, that's being known through the visual field. And it's so simple that it seems too obvious. So see if you can connect with a sense of that freshness, of seeing something for the first time. Moment to moment. Go ahead and just take a minute. You know, I'll invite you to stand. And you can move the body in any way that you'd like, just for a minute. And also just to say that, um, you know, if I know this probably isn't the norm, but I'm just going to give you permission that if at any point during the talk, if you feel like you need to stand, then you can do that. Or if you feel like you need to go to the restroom, you can do that. It won't bother me. Um, so I know this is a little out of the norm sometimes, but I want to also give you permission in that respect. So, And I'm going to turn it over to our program host. Do you need the microphone? Okay. Yeah. special guest tonight, Alex Haley. Uh, he's practiced mindfulness since 1998. He co-founded the Mindfulness for TV Club at the University of Minnesota and now teaches mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness at work through the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. Alex was trained as a community Dharma leader by Spirit Rock Meditation Center and is currently going through the teacher training program run jointly by Spirit Rock and the Inside Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. He's also trained through the Center for Spiritual Center for Spirituality and Healing and the Center for Mindfulness at the University of Minnesota. So we're very pleased to have him here. Uh, he's going to talk I think for about forty-five minutes. About that. And then give or take. And then. Um, We'll have a few minutes for questions and answers, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, and then still have questions 
Um, Alex might be able to spare a few minutes afterwards as well. Yeah, I'll stick around afterwards. And then I'll have a few announcements real quick at the end regarding the center and uh, where you can follow up with Alex as well. Uh, he's got some really great stuff uh, that he's leading. So again, warm welcome to Alex Haley. Thank you. And thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for hosting. I appreciate it. So uh, tonight, uh, I'm going to talk about um, distortions. And uh, part of what I was suggesting in uh, the guided meditation that I was leaving was actually pointing at some of these distortions. And so um, the term for this that, that comes out of, uh, out of this particular tradition, the tradition that we're in, uh, it's in Pali, it's called vipalasa. And vipalasa is translated in a couple of different ways. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as distortions. Sometimes it's referred to as perversions. Um, and it's speaking to um, what is happening in the mind and heart that is not allowing us to uh, clearly and accurately perceive something. So that's what I'm going to be exploring tonight. And I want to set the context uh, just for this topic. So um, I'm sure you have heard, and actually maybe not if it's the first time that you're coming here, but uh, the pith or the essence of uh, the Buddha's teaching was really suffering and the end of suffering. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only. It's suffering and the end of suffering. Another way to reframe that in the positive is freedom and the way leading to freedom. So that's the, this overarching context. And if we go down one layer, uh, he uh, focused on a very particular set of um, troublemakers is the way I'll refer to them. Uh, they're often spoken as uh, defilements or fires that are kind of burning. And uh, the, the three of them are greed, delusion, and hatred. So again, I'm sure this is not news for many of you. But what I want to really unpack is um, there's a wonderful Burmese teacher, and you may have heard the name. Uh, it's Sayadaw Tejaniya. And so he teaches uh, a wonderful way of uh, working with the mind and the nature of the mind itself. And when he talks about these uh, three troublemakers, the defilements or these three fires that I mentioned, the greed, delusion, and hatred, uh, he has a wonderful way of talking about it. He talks about it as though if you think of greed and anger, uh, those are um, self-revealing, which is that at some point in time, they will reveal their nature to you. So, you know, a classic example is uh, if you are really angry and then you kind of grit your teeth and you tell somebody, I'm not angry, I'm fine. And you can, you actually, in that moment, somebody will reflect back to you and go, really? Are you, you sure that you're not mad at me? Or you'll catch yourself at a later period in the day where your jaw is just so tense or your kind of, your uh, shoulders are up at your ears and you'll start to reveal the fact that there is something that is present and its nature is being revealed to you. Greed is very similar. We can 
have this experience of feeling as though we're constantly not satisfied with what is right in front of us. And we can see this in some very common activities. Uh, We can see it, uh, I often see it, I'll speak for myself, uh, in uh, kind of snacking patterns. This is very innocent, but it's just an idea where I'm kind of throughout the day I'm grabbing something to just kind of put in my mouth and to chew on it because I think, okay, well, that's in some way that's helping to self-soothe or it makes me feel good or I'm just doing it out of habit. And so there's this idea that somehow something in my immediate environment is not completely, uh, I'm not content with. There's something that I'm looking for that's external that means that this present moment isn't complete. And there are many examples of this, but I think, again, we can have this sense of not quite being satisfied. There's this sense of not being contented. And so we are actually going externally to find something, and there are many ways of doing this. We can often lose ourselves uh, on the internet when we're just kind of doing things, and then we wake up at some point and we go, wow, okay, I don't know, how long was I lost in my email? How long was I lost uh, in a myriad of different things that we're doing? And so, again, there's this quality at some point that reveals itself, that when we we can catch ourselves, we can catch that sort of um, dis-ease, that sense of, I'm not quite content. There's some subtle layer or thread of anxiety that's operating. And delusion. Now, this is a really interesting question. How do you know that you're deluded? Right? It's not as though, there's this, a wonderful teacher uh, who talks about it, it's not as though delusion walks out with a signboard and says, here I am, this is delusion. Right? This is ignorance. So, Then the question is, how do you start to investigate delusion itself? And so uh, I mentioned Saida Utejaniya. He describes this as, if you think of uh, greed and hatred as sort of the henchmen for a crime boss, and the crime boss is the one that's out, that you never see, that's in the back, and is running the whole crime syndicate, and you're catching the different henchmen at different times, greed and anger, but you never get to see the crime boss because the crime boss is out of view, is away, is removed, and you're just catching what's happening sort of with these henchmen of greed and anger. So that's Saida Utejaniya's framing of it. And um, what I want to do is uh, offer you a slightly uh, different take on it. It actually comes from a Chinese idiom. And I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to weave it into this talk. But I want you to hold that central question of how do you know uh, you're deluded and how do you know what you don't know? Because that's really what we're talking about in this this domain of ignorance and delusion. So um, this famous Chinese idiom, um, I'll give it to you in the the Chinese. It's just four characters. This is what I love about Chinese. It actually, they can say these amazingly profound things in four characters. And I'll, I'll kind of read you the the story in the background on it. But the, 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 this particular idiom goes, Jing Di Jiwa, which means literally translated, frog at the bottom of the well. And there's a whole story around this, and I'm going to read it to you. And this story is pointing directly at delusion, at ignorance, at a sense of narrow-mindedness. Okay? So here's the story behind the idiom of frog at the bottom of the well. A frog once lived in an abandoned well. Once, the frog saw a turtle at the edge of the well. 
and it boasted to the turtle, I can jump around in the mud and swim in the water. What a carefree life. Come down here. Join me in my paradise. The turtle wanted to go into the well, but it was too big for the well opening. Then it told the frog, I live in the ocean, which is so wide that you can't tell the sky from the sea, and it is so deep that you can't see its bottom. Only when you live in such an ocean can you truly enjoy a carefree life. The frog was stunned and stood there speechless. So this idea that the entire realm of the experience of the frog was the bottom of this well. And so when it looked up, it saw basically a circle that was the sky. And that was the perception of this is what the world is. And this, this, is, this is the universe. This is carefree. And so there is this realm where, in this case, the voice of another, of a turtle, actually cast that wide open and said, no, there's a, a limitless sky and a vast ocean. And this um, particular idiom fits so beautifully with uh, what the Buddha talked about in terms of what are the conditions for having right view. And so this is a very important piece uh, in the Buddha's teaching because right view is the forerunner of everything. If you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, right view is at the very beginning. And so the Buddha actually had um, uh, a kind of wonderful um, summation about this, about right view, when he said that uh, there are two conditions for the arising of right view, the voice of another and wise attention. So, you know, we can again, uh, just tying it back into this idiom, it was the turtle's voice that helped to waken or dispel the delusion. So what I'm going to do now is uh, I'm going to actually um, dive into this topic and I'm going to introduce it um, with um, the framework of the voice of another. So I'm going to use uh, a particular sutta that the Buddha gave and this is going to be the framework for really going through and investigating how does delusion operate and how can we start to get a, a sense of and explore and actually ultimately dispel the delusion. So this uh, is the Vipalasa Sutta. So that's what I was saying before. Vipalasa is distortion or perversion. And it's, it's very short. You can see that it's, it's ultimately just this one little page. So it's quite profound. And we're going to spend a little bit of time, or I'll spend a little bit of time unpacking it, and then we're going to explore it together at the end. So this is, uh, this is what the Buddha said. He said, these four are distortions of perception, Distortions of thought, distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing. Sensing pleasure in suffering. Assuming self where there's no self. Seeing the unlovely as lovely. Gone astray with wrong views. Beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, and Mara is just a personification of delusion, of ignorance, of that which keeps us bound. So bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They're beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, 
they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there's suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So that's a pretty powerful um, sutta. I mean, his, his discourse here, he's not saying, no, you know, this will get you most of the way. He's saying, this is it. This is the overcoming of all suffering. That's a universal qualifier there. So um, I want to take just a moment to um, pull out a couple of key terms that were in here so that the meaning isn't uh, lost. And actually, you know, I'll use this as a, as a good object. Um, I use this class. So the first thing is the um, translation of vipalasa itself. And so this, um, the particular uh, translation of the sutta I just read comes from um, Andrew Olinsky, who's a, uh, a Pali scholar, and he's a resident actually at the uh, Buddhist uh, or the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies uh, out at the Insight Meditation Society. And so he, uh, I'm just going to read this. He's actually translating the different parts of vipalasa, so breaking down that word. And he says the term is composed of a prefix v, which carries the sense of division, separation, or removal. Another prefix pari, which means around or complete, as in our related word perimeter, and a verb as, which can be taken as meaning to throw. Putting all this together, we have the image of the mind taking something up, churning it around, and throwing it back down, a perversion or distortion of reality by the perceptual and cognitive apparatus of the brain. So again, that's pretty heady. But what I want to do is show you just with the simple visual of this cup about what, what that is. And I'll make sure there's not extra water here. Give me a second. <clears throat> so what happens is if you have this cup, this description of vipalasa is as though you were to take this cup, pick it up, turn it upside down, and set it back down again. Now, what happens when I do that? Well, when I do that, I actually, my perception of this changes because a cup is like this. A cup is like this because I can pour water into it. It's a container. It holds things. But when it's upside down, it's no longer functioning as a cup. In fact, if I was looking at this, I might say, well, that's just a glass uh, display case. There's something that you would put under that, like a flower or something that was very precious that you wanted to protect. Uh, or I might say that this is a bug catcher. It's something that I use to, you know, catch a bug. And the perception of it is very different because it's not right way round, right? So that's what these distortions are doing. They're taking something, they're picking it up, they're flipping it the, the wrong way round, and then when we look at it, we go, boy, that doesn't look like a cup. That looks like a, a some sort of a glass, you know, display case, or like I said, the bug catcher. So that, I want you to keep that image in mind. That's what that kind of heady description of, uh, of vipalasa, when it's broken down, what it means. The other piece that I want to draw out is um, this meaning around mind. 
So the term in Pali is citta vipalasa, and citta actually um, in the original Pali refers to mind and heart together. So the translation of this sutta is distortions of the mind, but I think a, a more accurate way of looking at this is the distortions of the mind-heart, so that there is this emotional or affective quality that's also operating in the distortions. So we need to also have a sense of that as we're starting to investigate this topic. So let's dive into each of the distortions one at a time, okay? And um, I'm going to start with the first one, and that was the sensing for no change in the changing. And I add in, this is a parenthetical, this is my own addition, sensing and yearning for no change in the changing. That yearning for is that heart emotional-based quality. So it's not only that we're looking for or we're seeking, but we're yearning for from our, our heart base or our heart center. So one of my mentors and teachers, Joseph Goldstein, um, talks about this first sensing for no change in the changing. He says that it doesn't take a lot of meditative insight to realize the truth of change. I mean, we, we have a very easy way to conceptualize and understand, yep, things change. I get that. What's the big deal? I mean, we can, we can very easily have a concept and understand that. We don't need meditative insight to really penetrate that. The trick is in the integration of that truth that things constantly change. And so, you know, we, we have this sense of, yes, I can, I can appreciate change, but it's not close to the heart. It's not actually held and integrated with the way that we relate to and perceive the world. So uh, I'll give you some examples. You know, How often do we see someone and think that this might be the last time that I see this person? So uh, I'm going to share a little bit of a personal story. Um, this past week, uh, my wife had a good colleague at work who suddenly died. And uh, it's a complete shock to have that realization of there was this person that I saw, you know, I saw them on a Friday, and then they're gone. Where are they? All of a sudden, they're, they're not there anymore. And so we have this perception that, yes, I get it, things change, but it's not integrated in the way that we are actually relating moment to moment to our experience. So another one is thinking about leaving a stable or a secure job. What comes up when we just think about that? We've spent so much time finding that perfect job, having stability. We have a sense of security. And then we're about to give up this wonderful job with benefits, with everything else. Again, we run up against this idea of, no, this is stable. This is secure. And I need this. Or on a larger scale, what about standing up against oppression or a dominant cultural discrimination? Think about uh, the civil rights movement. Think about um, this meeting something that feels like it is immovable. It's monolithic. It's not possible to change it. How could it possibly be changed? And yet there are voices that rise up and say, no, this too must change, and it will change. It's just a matter of time, and I want to be a part of that. So again, 
the way we can see this in very profound ways when people integrate this into their being. Now, I want to be a little bit careful here because um, this can be sticky. Because in the early part of our lives, we actually need some security. We need a sense of stability. We need to know that things aren't constantly in flux. So when we're young, we know that we have to have basic things, basic security and stability. We need to have food. We need to have shelter. We have to have care from others. We wouldn't survive if we didn't have the care from others. And if they just left and said, well, everything changes, I'm gone, we wouldn't be here today, right? So that's really the piece where early on in our life we need it. Um, and actually that we have a yearning for it because we want to feel as though we have that ground or that security. The, the challenge or the difficulty is when we think that we found it forever and ever, right? So we don't want to give it up because there's this feeling of it being really wonderful. And again, this is talking about the affective or the heart quality of this. But at some point, the winds of change sweep in and something shifts. That's the nature of life. And so we can either appreciate this as being extremely dismal or as being inspiring, as onward leading in a search for something. So uh, I'm just going to share a few ways that um, this sense of integrating change can be onward leading or even inspiring. And then I want to give you some very practical, how do you practice with this and how do you bring it in? So I actually just recently received an email from a a very close friend of mine who is had ordained and is a monastic in a very remote area of Thailand. And he sent me this email out of the blue and he actually sent it to a lot of his close friends. And he said, I just want to tell you that I love you. And this is one man saying this to another man. So I just want to express that this is not something that is always so commonplace, particularly because men are not always, and again, this is a generalization, but not always open to expressing that. So he said, write out, I love you, and I want to tell you that. And um, he said, "I, I came to this realization that I needed to tell you that because I've been practicing a lot of meditation on death and dying. And so if you think about that, practicing meditation on death and dying and decay, that sounds pretty dismal, right? But what manifested for him as he did this was, I need to communicate to all those people in my life that I love them, that they have meaning to me. There's a, it actually opens up and frees the heart. It's contradictory. It's really a paradox when you start to explore this, that actually opening, it frees the heart to open and to love even more when you start to notice that things are uncertain. So that's the beauty of what the Buddha is pointing at here. This, he's, he's actually taking us all the way to the end and saying, this is possible to be in a place where we can recognize and abide in the uncertainty, and that gives us freedom. And it manifests in beautiful ways. There's a, a wonderful um, quote that I just want to read. This actually comes from uh, Crowfoot who was a warrior, poet, and chief of the Blackfoot Nation. And he beautifully points at the uncertainty and the change in life, while also bringing out the preciousness and the beauty. So, and it's very short. This is what he says. He says, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass 
and loses itself in the sunset. So those are beautiful images. And again, it's all pointing at change. And it's this taking the distortion of looking at something and saying it's fixed, it's never going to change, and turning it right way around and saying, no, the only constant is change. But yet when I abide or integrate that sense of change, it opens up the heart and the mind. So how do we practice this? I want to get very practical about this. So one way that we can do this, and again, this is just a suggestion. Check it out for yourself. With anything that I say, explore it for yourself. One way is to be close to nature. So nature is a constant reminder of change. We are right now in the midst of changing seasons. And if you're close to nature, you're always close to change because nature is vibrant. It's always changing. It's dynamic. So that's one practice. And actually, in our modern world, we're quite removed from nature, which is why some of the beauty of this practice is going out and walking in nature, being with nature, being close to change. So what's another way? Uh, I mentioned this before uh, related to my friend. It's the reflection on our own mortality. Now, we can do this with very formal practices, like there are death meditations. There are many variations of that. But we don't have to go that far. We can even just do a very simple exercise, which I'm sure many of you have heard of before, which is sitting down and imagine that you're writing your own eulogy. And what would you want it to say? And the trick is that you write the eulogy while you're still alive, and then you live towards that eulogy. And so this, again, is a powerful reflection, and it's a powerful practice. The other thing is we can associate with people who are aware of and open to the truth of change. So we have this beautiful community. Everyone here is practicing, and this is a central part of these practices, this truth of change. We can even seek out the elders in our community. And so one of the greatest losses that I feel, and I'll just speak for myself, is that in this modern world, we have this proliferation of ageism, which is where we are bombarded with uh, media, we're bombarded with um, products that are espousing youth and beauty. And then what we do is we tend to take the wise elders and we isolate them. We put them all together in one place and we say, yep, okay, I, that maybe is a little too close to home to actually be with these wise elders that know the truth of change. They know the truth of so many years of, of life, and there's so much wisdom there. So I actually was just, uh, I've read a couple of excerpts from this book. I haven't read the whole thing, but it's, it really inspired me. There was a book called 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. And it was basically somebody who went around and interviewed all of, uh, uh, kind of a, a large sample of wise elders in America and basically wanted to hear and understand the wisdom that they had to share. So this is another practice. We actually associate with the wise, people in this community, others that know the truth of change. So I want to move now to the second distortion. So this is sensing pleasure and suffering. Another way to phrase this is taking what is unsatisfactory to be happiness. And I'm going to add in another insertion here which is sensing and yearning for pleasure and suffering, or sensing and yearning for satisfaction in that which is unsatisfactory. So there are endless examples of this. 
uh, in the external world. And it's constantly uh, this kind of chasing after. Uh, I'll give you just some very um, kind of mundane examples that I've seen uh, in my own mind, which, and they're very basic. So one is around kind of electronic devices. We can see uh, this seduction of technology. And so this idea of, oh, you know, the iPhone 5S, or I don't even know what model we're on, the whatever version that just came out, if I get that, I'm finally going to be able to have this technical, you know, solution to my disorganization. I'm going to be able to be constantly connected with my friends. I'm going to be able to solve all these problems. And I'm going to look really cool and stylish while I'm doing it. So we get seduced into this and yearning for some sense of, and again, this is a small example, but yearning for some sense of the satisfaction and something that we know in a year is just going to go away and there's going to be the iPhone 6 or iPhone 7 and it's constantly, there's no end to it. It just keeps going on. Uh, I mentioned before food. This is a very challenging one. And so uh, food is a very loaded area. Um, but we can also, I'm sure we've all had the sense of if we're in some sort of angst or uh, there's discomfort, we have the sense that, okay, well, if I can just have a little bit of comfort, maybe a little bit more comfort food, that will help just kind of allow this pain or this angst to go away or this uneasiness to end. So these are small examples. Um, I want to just read you a quote again. This is from um, my mentor and teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and this is from one of his new books called Mindfulness. And he says this, Have you ever experienced the idea that there is something you must have or must do and then experienced an almost obsessive quality in the mind that ceases only when you either get it or the desire goes away. And all the while, we think this is happiness, until the moment when we finally stop wanting and feel the relief and ease of that. And somewhat ironically, what the world calls suffering, renunciation, restraint at the sense doors, silence, simplicity, environments with few entertaining distractions, the Buddha calls happiness because of the ease, open-heartedness, and peace of mind that they bring. So what's the heart or the affective quality? And I want to I get to that because this quote that I just read is pointing at that. And again, we're raised from a very young age to have a sense for seeking out the pleasant, for having some sense of satisfaction. And many of us live on the myth that we're told that if we go to school, if we work hard, we get a good job, then we'll finally be happy. And I think all of us in the room have a sense of, okay, so I've got there or I've experienced that on some level, but I'm still not quite happy. There, there are moments in my day that aren't always happy. And so then that, again, raises the question. It's a motivation or a spark to say, what is there that's beyond the instant gratification of the senses? And we know that when we try to gratify all these different senses, it's only fleeting. It's momentary. We can have moments of happiness. I mean, there's nothing that's actually, as lay people, this is quite important. There's nothing that is inherently wrong in enjoying a sense pleasure. It, the danger is when we get stuck to it, when we think that this is it. Okay, I just got to keep gratifying all these senses. And what happens is we can start to lose ourselves in that constant search for sense pleasure. And so when we start to wake up and have the sense of, I'm not happy, 
wait a minute, I, you know, I've been searching after this. I've bought in six iterations of the iPhone, and I'm still not, you know, completely happy. Then we actually can start to care about something different, and that turns us back to the present moment. We start to notice our attitude about how are we relating to what's happening in the external world. We start to um, care about what's going on internally, and we become less enchanted. We become disenchanted, which, again, is freedom. It's pointing at something that's larger. It's the breaking of a spell or an enchantment. So how do we practice this and explore this? So one way, and again, this is just my sort of suggestions on this, is we can become curious about and notice how many times throughout the day do you have the thought, once this happens, I'll be happy. Right? And just just become curious about it. And, and notice this ever so slight leaning. So you can get a sense of this. I mean, you can actually use your body. If you just lean a little bit forward, even on your cushion or your chair where you're right now, hold that sense or hold that posture for just a moment. Feel all the energy, all the holding, the tension, everything that has to go into holding that posture because you're actually leaning in and you're fighting against gravity. And then when you lean back, you find your equilibrium then you are not using nearly as much energy. And there's a sense of ease. There's a sense, again, of, ah, I can drop. So this is, again, we can start to notice this, this, this sense of leaning in or this thought of, you know, once this happens, I'll be happy. The other thing that we can do is we can intentionally cultivate compassion and kindness in our meditation practice. This is where the practice of the, Bra- the Brahma-viharas and some of these other uh, practices are so critical because when we sense how continually disappointed we are in chasing after all of these sense uh, desires, and when we continually stick our finger back into the flame, get burned, and then do it again because it's a habit, we can actually start to hold ourselves with more compassion. We can start to hold ourselves with more kindness and see this as the human condition. This is not unique to us. This is a larger challenge that we all face as human beings. And this actually was the motivation for why the Buddha taught. It said that after his awakening, uh, after he had been requested to teach, he looked around with his divine eye, and he saw countless beings that were seeking happiness, but acting in ways that caused suffering. So he was motivated by compassion to teach and say, I know the yearning for happiness. Let me help you show the way. So again, even just as I say that, I get kind of chills about that. I mean, what a beautiful motivation to be motivated out of compassion so we can cultivate compassion and kindness. The other last thing I'll offer is just a reflection. It's a very simple reflection. Reflect in your own life if you have ever found everlasting happiness in the external world. And if you ask that question and you reflect, not finding it, let the not finding be the motivation and the cultivation for your spiritual life, for actually investigating and looking inward rather than going outward. So that's the last thing that that I'll mention there. And I'm aware of time, so I want to make sure I leave uh, some space for uh, questions and answers. So I I may cut out some of these other pieces, but I'm going to go to the third distortion now, which is assuming and hoping. This is my insertion, So and hoping. So assuming that self is where there's no self, or... Again, with my insertion, assuming and hoping, that's the heart quality, that self is where there is no self. So this is a huge topic, okay? 
And this is something that uh, is actually one of the Buddha's most profound teachings. This is uh, anatta, or the no-self teaching. Uh, I'm not going to go into huge depth. I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch and then leave you with some practical tools for how you can start to investigate this. Okay? So we live in an amazing time. We're in an amazing world. Uh, we know actually through modern science that um, there's no central control function that's operating in the brain. That is that there's no master controller that's at the switches of all the circuitry of our brain. When you actually look and when you see all these uh, research that's coming out and I'm constantly kind of getting updates, um, particularly from the the mindfulness side about some of this new research. What we find is that there are 100 billion neurons in the adult human brain. Don't ask me how they got to that precise number of 100 billion, but that's what one uh, research uh, study I was reading was actually talking about. And there's a famous neuroscientist who was talking about this 100 billion neurons in the adult human brain that are firing in certain patterns that we perceive as some tangible or ever-present static self. So we take this illusion that this patterns and habits of firing is fixed, it's static, it's something that actually exists independent of itself. So switching that from the science view to the Buddhist view, when we look at this profound teaching, what it is pointing at is really looking deeply and seeing what we believe as self to be that illusion and so the reality is something that's much more dynamic. It's something that's impersonal. It's a natural process. So again, this is pointing back to nature. Uh, and it's unfolding moment to moment. Uh, my uh, teacher and mentor often likes to say it's just empty phenomena rolling on. Okay? So we can get a sense of this actually here in Minnesota. And we can actually, I think we're fortunate because we can see... Um, this in wintertime particularly, and I want you to just think of an image of an ice cube. So we have the ice cube, and when the ice cube is there, we can look at it and we can say this is solid, this is static, it has some edges that are clearly delineated. I can look at the ice cube, and, and you know it feels solid, and I can actually, if you're on a frozen lake, you can stand on the frozen lake, which is a pretty amazing thing. But then we all know that there's this deeper intrinsic quality that is... When the conditions change, the cube starts to transform and it becomes something that is dynamic, that is not solid. It actually is flowing. And it's not actually clearly delineated. There aren't boundaries so that unless I put it in something like this that has boundaries, I can't tell you where the boundaries of the water is. And so we actually, that's what this is pointing at. It's pointing at the, there is this sense of an ice cube, right, and that is a property or something that water can do. It can be frozen, and it can feel like this is solid. But then the truth and the wisdom from what we all know from, again, being close to nature is that there are these other deeper qualities, right, that it has, it's not static, it's flowing, it's changing, it's not solid. It actually doesn't have clearly delineated boundaries. So, and again, this is just an image. It's just pointing at what this, this teaching is getting at. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, again, the affective or the heart quality side. And um, this is really, again, a little bit sticky because when we're just growing up and when we're young adults and even into our adulthood, we need to have a healthy sense of who we are. So actually having an identity, having the ego, 
we need to we need to feel that because that helps us navigate through the world. It helps us figure out. It leads to all kinds of self-discovery. The challenge is that when we stop there, when we take that as the absolute, so we if we stop just at this sense of okay, this is it. it I'm I'm this particular way. I have these habits, these patterns, this way of speaking. Uh, then what ends up happening is we're stuck with self-referencing. So I. I pointed at this a little bit at the end of the guided meditation where I said, look back and see if there is a reference point. Start to become curious about this. Start to see, what is that? What is that reference point? And I just want to suggest to you that self-referencing is also the origin of uh, human groups that are based on similarities. So you look like me, you talk like me, you act like me, so I'm going to hang out with you. And that actually sets up the whole dichotomy of self and other, of us and them. And we all know where this ends up leading. This is the isms. This is the phobias. This is sexism. This is racism. This is all the other areas where we get stuck. And it's a fundamental failure of humanity to be able to move past this delusion. And really, it takes vulnerability. It takes courage to explore the areas where we feel shaky. So this is a heart quality. And I'll just share that in my own uh, kind of exploration around privilege, uh, around the collective wound of the patriarchy. And it's this, and I don't want to suggest that we, you know, it's, it's somehow men are exempt from this. There actually is a wound of patriarchy that men also experience, but that isn't known. It's almost a shadow. So when we move into these shaky areas, again, this is the heart quality. It's the courage. It's the willingness to be vulnerable. So how do we practice this? Um, we practice this in a couple of ways. And again, these are just a few, so I'm going to suggest them. The first one is the practice of generosity. So this is the wisdom that says we don't really own anything. We really are only stewards, that we have this time. We're here for a while. It's that flash of the firefly that we heard from Crowfoot that I read earlier. And really what we're doing is we're stewards, and in the act of giving away, we're touching into this deeper quality of we recognize that there is nothing that's static. I can't take something that I own and take it with me throughout wherever I'm going. Uh, there's actually this wisdom that says, I'm going to let this go, and I can actually be of service. I can give something, and I can give it from an open heart. We can also start to play with noticing perception at the sense bases, so at all the different senses that we have. And we can notice when the mind starts to bring in extra information. So this is in the guided meditation at the very end when I had you open the eyes and just have a sense of the visual field, not as I know this room, this is common ground, every you know Wednesday I come here at this time. That's the narrative. That's the memory. That's everything that's coming in. And actually we can rest back at the sense base itself of seeing, at the organ, the eyes itself, and the consciousness that's arising at the eyes, and just rest in the field itself. So again, this is subtle, but this is a way that we can start to play at what is being pointed at with this not-self. It's impersonal. It's natural processes that are are moving on. Another practical Exercise is one that uh, another one of my teachers, Philip Moffat, uh, talks about is seeing how often you take yourself as the movie star of your own blockbuster movie. So see if you can notice kind of 
throughout the day where you're like, yep, okay, this story's all about me, yep, I'm the movie star, this is the best movie, or boy, this is the kind of the lull in the movie, this is not the, the best scene, when's it going to get back up? And we can start to track this, and what we can do as a practice is see if we can actually play with this imagery, like expand the lens out a little bit, and just imagine that the camera is going wide and perceiving all the other things that are happening around, or we can actually shift the camera angle. So put the camera on somebody else, so that you're not always in the scene. You're not always there, right? So this is another way we can play with, it's not all about me. It's not the me show or the me movie. It's something else. Um, the other one is, again, as I kind of pointed at the end, was just having a willingness to go to our edges, to be vulnerable. And it's in our vulnerability and at our edges that we start to grow and we can establish connection and we can begin to heal, heal ourselves and heal communities. So this is a big piece. Um, so I think what I'm going to do in this last one is actually cut quite a bit of this short so that we can have time for question and answering, but I, I don't want to totally gloss over it. So the last distortion is sensing the unlovely as lovely or taking what is unattractive to be attractive. So I'll just pick one example. One example where I've seen this before actually is in the video game industry. And I'm going to explain this because you're going to think, what does that got to do with anything? So the, in the video game industry, there actually is this um, belief that when we have a visually stunning game, it's lifelike. It has the ability to simulate reality. We can have, and there's a huge number of young adults. I see this a lot with young adults I work with. And even cultures, entire cultures. In Japan, they refer to them as a lost generation. They're just gamers that play games all the time. And these games are perceived as being attractive, as beautiful. But actually, they're espousing violence. The underlying piece in the game is all premised on violence. And there's this... Uh, one of uh, another one of my teachers was talking about an interview that she heard. There was uh, the release of the new Grand Theft Auto. That's the name of the game. And Grand Theft Auto, I don't know what we're on five or six, and it's all about you know you have to go around and shoot people and steal cars and there's all these other things that you have to do in the game. And she was interviewing, or this particular uh, interviewer was talking to one of these game industry experts and was saying. Uh, you know, and asking for his opinion, and he said, oh, this is the most creative, brilliant, beautiful game that's ever been released, and it's, you know, it's imaginative and innovative, and it's going to change the game industry. And the interviewer said, yeah, but this is so misanthropic. And misanthropic, I was sort of like, okay, what does that mean? I had to go back to the dictionary. It means that it's actually against humanity. So misanthropic, we're actually, we're, there's an aggression that's being directed towards humanity itself. There's violence that's being done. And so this is how we can spin and distort and see things and say, this is, a, this is attractive, but actually it's unattractive. Because when we look at the root and the foundation, it's, it's not actually espousing freedom. It's not espousing an open heart. It's not onward leading. So again, that's just one example. Um, and the last piece, uh, the heart piece of this, is where the Buddha talks about beauty, not beauty in the sense of, that's visually stunning like in a game, but it's beauty of the wholesome mind states. When we tap into generosity, when we tap into contentment, and when we feel that, there's a beautifulness that opens up in the mind. And it's also um, the beauty of a simple life, of a life that we live without regret. And it's also the beauty of non-craving. It's having a sense of 
renouncing, of being content, and not constantly desirous and, and moving away. We can actually have this beauty of non-craving. So how do we practice this? And this is where I'm going to end. Um, in our own practice, it's really starting to cultivate and investigate and really register beautiful qualities of mind and heart. And these are the ones that I just mentioned that the, the Buddha was talking about. It's also taking a deeper look at external things in our life and notice if that they're always attractive and pleasing to us. Is there something that is 100% all the time attractive and pleasing to us? And we can start to see down at a different level. We're correcting a distortion that's happening. We can also actually appreciate beauty, but do it as though we were watching a gorgeous sunset. And so when we're watching a gorgeous sunset, we allow ourselves to experience it, but we don't cling to it and try to recreate the sunset or spend all of the time searching for that exact sunset that we just saw. We can open to it in the moment as it's present, experience it fully, register it as beautiful, and then allow it to pass. So I'm going to close um, just with these two last um, pieces. They're two very short quotes. So the first quote is from the Buddha, again, and he says, bhikkhus, which is really seekers on the path, anyone that's practicing, I do not see even a single thing so blameworthy as wrong view. Wrong view is the worst of things that are blameworthy. And then going back to the Vipalasa Sutta that I started with, when those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing. Suffering where there's, uh, suffering where there's suffering. Non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, so this is right view, they overcome all suffering. So thank you for your attention. Um, yeah, and so I want to open it up now a little bit if there are questions or comments even. Yes. First, thank you for your time and, and sharing what you know with us tonight. Um, a couple things I want to talk about. One, going back to the idiom of our frog friend at the bottom of the well. Yes. And, uh, you know, you've got this, uh, on one hand, this, this jerk of a turtle. Was like, you, know, <laughs> you blew my world up, right? And so uh, I was super happy as the frog, and now I know So, but... Now I'm going to tie to the idea of that sense of self. Yes. Um, so we bring it back to the very basic level of me as an individual, and then I expand it out a little bit further to um, perhaps my family, my partner, the people that I love, then out to a, a little small community. And if you live in that small community, to your point about this is the basis of the isms, the, the, the racism, the sexism, and things like that, only by being exposed to the bigger world, by, by world travel, whatever it happens to be, meeting other people that have experienced other things, you then get to understand that bigger picture. So for the frog, on one hand, the turtle of dirt, but then thank you, turtle, for showing me that bigger piece, because then that sense of self begins to disappear. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I think that's a, I mean, that is a, it's a, you're right. It's a beautiful comment. There's an unfolding that happens. And you're, one piece that I'm hearing in that also is that there is that heart quality that's coming up about, okay, this turtle was a jerk. He blew my mind. And there, that's actually touching into the heart quality of, oh, that hurts. I didn't know that. There's actually some piece of me that when I'm sort of shocked or stunned, 
And so there is both the shift that's happening in the kind of the, the mental perception level, but it's also a shift that's happening in the heart. And yeah, so thank you. Other comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah, you want the citation for it? Yeah. yeah so um, the Vipalasa Sutta comes from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the numerical discourses, and it's 4.49. And there's a 4.49. Yep, and it's, uh, you'll see it abbreviated as AN, which is Anguttara Nikaya, which just means numerical discourses. Yeah, thank you. My name is Pat. Um, you know, it kind of struck me when you were talking, you use the word happiness so often, and it feels like kind of a problematic word mm. to me in a way it's a solid thing that we keep reaching for. And could you talk a little bit about, you know, how Buddhism thinks about that? I mean, when I think about the concepts that we're learning here, it's more about not suffering. Right. Um, just looking at my time. <laughs> um, that's a very uh, important question, what you just asked. And uh, I'm going to, I just want to acknowledge that at the beginning I'm going to give it a little bit of a, I'm not going to be able to do justice to the question that you just asked. But one of the reasons why um, there is the formulation of the Four Noble Truths and all of these other um, kind of profound Buddhist teachings that are referring to suffering and the end of suffering is because um, it's suffering also is not a static or fixed thing, just like happiness is not a static or fixed thing. Suffering, uh, the, the word dukkha itself is actually a spectrum word. So it encompasses everything from uh, the very subtle uh, sense of, uh, of angst uh, or just dissatisfaction all the way to the loss of somebody who is the most important loved one in our life, that total gut-wrenching grieving and everything in between. And so part of the challenge is how do we use language to point at something that is actually dynamic and more of a spectrum or an ever-changing, something that's in flux. And so the, um, the formulation of suffering and the end of suffering is we all, I, I, I'll kind of ask the question, but I would assume that we all have some expertise in suffering which is that if there's anybody in here that doesn't have some suffering in their life or hasn't experienced some moment of dissatisfaction, then you should be up here rather than me because, I mean, this is, this is really, and this is not, I'm not trying to be kind of glib about this, but this is really important because we actually, the entryway or the access point is that we start with where we are. We know suffering. We know dissatisfaction. We can know somewhere along that spectrum of the smallest form of angst or dis-ease all the way to the grief of losing our closest loved one. And it's that access point. And then the Buddha is pointing at and saying there is something that is the opposite of that. There is the end of that. And that's, again, where language gets so tricky. Because when you say, well, what is the end of suffering? What is it that is actually the end of that? And 
we can get caught up cognitively of, oh, it must be like this or it must be like that. But that's not what the Buddha is getting at. He's pointing at pragmatic practices and the direct experience of actually looking and searching for it and then realizing that from the inside, not from some level of the cognition. And actually, um, the one way that it's, uh, a couple ways it's described is as the sure heart's release. And to me, that's beautiful. It's almost like there's just this untangling and there isn't the constriction. It's, it's an area without edges. What is it like to have an area without edges? And so when I was formulating it in the positive form of happiness, there actually are some discourses that talk about, where the Buddha talks about it as a progression of moving through that which is pleasant and actually touching in to that very same thing. And so there are different ways of coming at it. But one of the reasons why the formulation of suffering is so powerful is because we all have that as a reference point in our life. We all have some suffering. And so we can connect with that, and then that is onward leading. Whereas true happiness, you're right, it feels abstract. It feels like it's out there. It's a concept. But we can start to tap into these momentary moments, of even just in a sitting meditation, of there is some peace. There is some contentment. And there are some... Um, there's a, a wonderful Buddhist teacher uh, who talked about it as everyday nibbana, everyday realization. If we didn't have those moments of peace, those moments of contentment or happiness, then we would go crazy because we would just have greed, hatred, and delusion. So actually, but it's less familiar to us, so accessing it the other way. So I, I'm kind of pointing at and trying to get there, but hopefully that, that's helpful. Yes. Yes. And and that's and that's important because I you know to look at it from different lenses. Just like this whole talk was about distortions. As you change the angle in multiple ways, you'll see it in different ways. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And I'm aware of um, the time, so maybe I'm going to turn it back over to the program host. It's 9:01. I don't. I'll stick around if there are other questions or comments or anything else. But thank you for your attention, and thank you for your practice. Thank you for being here. This is radical stuff, and uh, it's an honor to be here, so thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.